Welcome to Montana 3000, Tales of 15 Minutes From Now, read by the author, Sean Gallagher. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and see the website for updates on new episodes at montana3000.com. And now, your host, Sean Gallagher. Everyone dies of something. Everyone dies of something, so Max used to tell me, right up until the time when his heart and liver imploded in synchronicity. He'd say it by way of toast, lifting his see-through toward me with a wink as he blew cigarette smoke out his nose like a paunchy middle-aged dragon. I used to think the sentiment was a defense mechanism against his fear of the beyond, a stealing self-affirmation steeped in grim acknowledgement of his vices and their unavoidable consequence. Now I think maybe he just didn't give a damn and was smirking alongside the reaper at that inside joke only the reckless understand. You can't run from it, so you might as well dance toward it. I want another drink. It's 9.45 a.m. Max was what's known in the business as a cleaner, an assassin brought in by ownership to get rid of that which cannot be gotten rid of. We met on a job in Portland. It was an impossible Monday in late February. Wet, icy, and gray. The kind of day where no one comes around. I'd just finished scraping the windshields and was making my way back to the portable come office for a reheated cup of yesterday's coffee. I stomped the slush off myself and went in to find Maurice, talking to a guy in a black Macintosh and wet hush puppies. This is Max, he said without preamble. He's here to move the metal you losers can't sell. Show him around the lot and do what he says. He's in charge till he leaves. Max offered me a silky smooth hand, a wide tobacco-stained grin, and a slap on the back. Pleased to meet you. I'm Max, he bubbled, a little too ebulliently. Thanks for your time. I know you're busy. I wasn't. I sure appreciate a tour of your lovely site on this lovely day. If you don't mind, let's start with the pigs. With that, he launched himself out the door and into the sleet, me trudging after we spent the next two hours reviewing the lot's modest collection of junkers and jalopies, starting, as Max had requested, with the most unsellable first, moving up the ladder from there, and eventually making our way to the least undesirable of our uninspired inventory. He knew his stuff. You boys got a good upholstery guy. That flood damage is well hidden. And asked only statements. This lady's seen some action. Been frame and all, eh? By tour's end, he knew the lineup as well as anyone on the team, and said to me with another smiling slap on the back, I think I got it, Jack. Thanks for the time. Ain't no one coming out in this weather, though, so we'll sell these beasts tomorrow. Now let's get drunk. I couldn't argue with that. Max was boss now. What ensued was the first of ten years worth of drunken bull sessions, with a man trench-wisened in that unique way only a lifelong salesman can be. His sagacity was wide-ranging, covering such varied topics as psychology. No one buys from a guy they don't like. Politics. Some go into the game for the right reasons. They all stay for the wrong ones. Relationships. Love hurts, but loneliness kills. Money. Might be the root of all evil, but poverty don't put pudding on your plate. Life. Forget the past. You can't regret what you don't remember. And of course death. In addition to his barroom wisdom, Max also taught me the indelicate craft of cleaning. After spending a week selling nearly every car on our lot, 
Max received his cut and took back to the road. On his way out the door, he grabbed me by the lapels and brought me with him. Must have liked the cut of my jib. Or maybe he just wanted a drinking buddy who listened more than he talked. Whatever his motivation, Max, my dead drunk sensei, taught me to seek the thrill of closing the unsellable sale. Speaking of which, about a month ago, I came into an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Goes like this. An upstart group of gutter snipes at a Provo had decided to take a swing for the fences in the highly lucrative and very competitive world of snack foods, specifically potato chips. These guys had been watching the big boys experiment with exotic flavors for a few years, and they felt they could grab a piece of the action before anyone noticed. So they toyed around in the kitchen and came up with a few flavors. They floated a thousand units of peanut butter and jelly kettle chips to the Salt Lake market and sold out nearly overnight. Feeling pretty good about themselves, they followed up with another 5,000 units of PB&J, plus 2,500 of Moscow Mule. Same thing, immediate sellout. At this point, they were thinking they had the game figured out and went in heavy. 10,000 units of PB&J, 10,000 units of Moscow Mule, regional distribution to three states, and just for yucks, 5,000 units of their newest flavor, blackened tilapia. The first two SKUs continued to sell well, but tilapia was a dud, and it threatened to sink the whole ship. They tried discounting through their retailers, but no dice. One of the long poles in the snack food tend is product expiration, and these fellas were running up against it. They had six months to move their inventory before their dates went bad, and that's where I came in. Cleaners often run lines in a few different channels. In addition to cars, paper products, and children's textiles, I dabble in snack foods. So when these guys started looking for serious help, word got to me and I reached out. Long story short, I offered them a deal that made their problems a little smaller and provided a chunky success fee for me. Which is why I sit here now in the middle of nowhere Utah with a sour gut and a truckload full of snacks that taste like Cajun spice bass bait, waiting to meet with the proprietoress of Margot's Curios Cave. There's a slight tremble in my left hand. I could really go for that drink. 9.56. As I stand here in the empty store, the sales clerk wandered outside 20 minutes ago to find Margot. I'm spellbound by my bizarre surroundings. Self-styled is the world's worst gift shop, they don't give one much to argue with. And they aren't calling this a cave for kitsch. It's literally in a cave. Deep and dark, all damp and no sizzle. Light comes from fluorescent bars mounted against the slimy walls and powered, I assume, by an out-of-sight generator. The air mopes sluggishly about with a nudge from an oscillating fan set on the floor against the cave's east wall. The shop's wares are displayed on a harlequin patchwork of busted-up steel shelving, jury-rigged cinder blocks and two-by-eights, and mildewed wooden bookshelves. The smell is fecund and I'm pretty sure I just saw a bat. There's a distinct vibe given off here of a serial killer's unfinished basement. And then there's the inventory. I'm not for certain, but it appears that at least half of everything in here is broken, damaged, or partially eaten. That's not a joke. In the bargain bin, which is a sawed-off oil drum, I'm looking right now at an open bag of Raoul's Tamarind Crunch Wafers, $1.99. I happen to know Raoul's Snack Co. was shut down two years ago due to a catalog of well-publicized and well-deserved health code violations. Along the west wall, there's an entire display of broken dream catchers. 
the perfect gift for that not-so-special someone whose hope you want to kill. And in the clothing corner, there are novelty t-shirts and hats from at least 10 different tourist destinations, none of them the Curios Cave. That's just a sampling. The shop is a menagerie of chaos that defies explanation. I've seen some stuff in my time, but I've never wandered into an asylum like this. I can't wait to meet Margot. It's 10 a.m. sharp, and here she is. It's hard to tell if she's good-looking or not. I mean, she's definitely not now, but she might have been at one point. She's tough to pin because she has the trappings of once-ago beauty, a dancer's lithe physique, well-styled blonde hair falling just below the shoulder, laughing and luminous green eyes, and the face of a catcher's mitt that's been cross-hatched and leathered by too much sun and youth. Multiple scarred-over piercings in her nose and ears suggest wilder days of an earlier age, and hints of ink peek out at her cuffs, betraying tat sleeves under her form-hugging leather jacket. She wears tight jeans and roughed-up cowboy boots. No makeup. No jewelry. She moves with confidence and grace, coming toward me with her hand held out warmly and a white, slightly gapped smile. I place her age somewhere between 30 and 80, with the over-under on the downslide of 50. While far from beautiful, she has unconventional sex appeal, and I'm surprisingly smitten. Hi, Jack. I'm Margot. Welcome to my freaky little outpost, she says with an endearing giggle. Can I get you something to drink? There's water or tea. Or if you're feeling funky, she adds with a wink, I can get you a soda from the world's worst snack bar. We have strawberry meatloaf cola, maple bacon seltzer, and wasabi root beer. I'd avoid the coffee. Smile. It's worse than the soda. I'm okay for now, thank you, but maybe I'll try the meatloaf later. I did skip breakfast. Max always said there's a fine line between flirt and charm, and the key to a good sale is tiptoeing along it. Okay, well, let me know. How about a tour of the grounds before we start talking taters? You can help me feed the peacock. I have no idea what she's talking about, but I'll bite. Sure, I say with a grin. Lead the way. She takes me through the front door of the walled-in cave, which appears, earmuffs, fire marshal, to be the only way in or out. From there, we go through the parking lot and around to the right of the shop, where, hidden from roadside view, there's a small meadow abutting the hill into which the cave is bored. In the meadow is parked a dilapidated trailer with a handwritten poster board reading, World's Worst Snack Bar. It's here, I presume, where one might sample such delights as meatloaf soda and only God knows what else. Behind the trailer is a slapdash aviary of chicken wire and telephone poles, housing, one further presumes, at least a peacock. There are also a couple of picnic tables splashed around the grassy space, as well as a weed-choked horseshoe pit. A sun-faded porta potty hides behind a tree. In the far corner of the meadow is a broken-down and rusted-out tractor. Thrown haphazardly over the gear shift is a sign that reads, Tetanus Tony says, play at your own risk. The meadow scene does nothing to offset the disorienting insanity of the cave shop, but I grudgingly admit, this place has a madman's appeal. Something about the devil-may-care attitude of it all. It reveals something about Margot and her bohemian spirit. Not sure what my attraction to it all reveals about me. Margot pops her head into the snack trailer and comes out with a plastic bag of moldy hamburger buns that she hands to me as she moves toward the aviary, clearly intending for me to follow. For Mr. Bird, she says over her shoulder. 
She holds the chicken wire door open for me as we proceed to tear up the buns and sprinkle them around for the cage's single occupant, Mr. Bird, a beautiful beast of blue and green plumage with the talons of a raptor, who seems uninterested in our presence. We leave him to peck lazily at the lackluster fare and take up seats at the picnic table nearest the cage. It's a perfect spring morning with a golden sun glowing down bright from a blue and fat-clouded sky. Margot speaks first. This usually goes one of two ways. Most people wander around looking slightly confused, mumble something polite, and hit the road as quickly as possible. But some, she smiles at me with those sparkling green eyes, are strangely enchanted by it all and linger for a closer look. Where do you fall out, Jack? It's not a defiant or challenging question, and I have the impression my answer will in no way affect our business dealings. She's simply trying to figure out where I land on the scale of oddity. I've never seen anything like it before, Margot. I say truthfully. I like it. To my surprise, I realize this too is the truth. She searches my eyes for a moment at this answer, then perks with a widening grin. Yeah, me too. It was a gift from my ex-husband. Third ex-husband, she adds with a wink. It ended the only way a good marriage can. He died. I'm sorry to hear that. Don't be. Like I said, it's the best elegant exit if you want to end things friendly-like. Any exes on your ledger, Jack? Two. Any dead ones? Nope. Both alive and kicking. And scratching. And biting. Well, we can't all be so lucky, she giggles. Then continues. Anyhow, when Grayson died, he left me the deed to 12 acres in southern Utah. I'd never even been to Utah before, and to my knowledge, neither at Gray. But he knew my fascination with caves, so he found one and bought it for me. He was cool like that. She pauses for a moment in sweet remembrance. I had no interest in Utah. I was an L.A. girl, born and raised. But out of morbid curiosity, I came to check the place out. It spoke to me in a weird way, and I accidentally fell in love with it here. Ah, love, I say. Ah, love, she echoes with a smile. I decided to turn the place into a roadside attraction and stay for a while. This byway actually gets a fair bit of traffic from people trying to avoid the interstate. I figured if I was going to do it, I might as well do it weird, so I went around to a bunch of thrift stores, bought the craziest stuff I could find, and the world's worst gift shop was born. That was five years ago now. About two years ago, I took on the same model and created the world's worst snack bar. Instead of thrift shop, I get my inventory from manufacturers looking to get rid of discontinued lines and flavors. I don't have to tell you, there's some gross stuff out there. That's Margot's cave in a nutshell. What's your excuse for being here, Jack? Sharing a story is always part of the sale. It's how you break the ice and create connection. Max used to say, keep it broad and self-deprecating, lightly personal and never anything political or religious. Even if you get a read on the other's views, steer clear you'll be dragged away from the ultimate goal, the close. Self-deprecating is good because it shows you don't take yourself too seriously. People like that. My left hand is really starting to shake now. I hide it in my lap. My story is not exactly Hollywood material. I was raised in Oregon, joined the Army after high school, spent four years in Germany, Moved back to Portland after the service and got a job selling kid shoes at Castleman's department store. I hated the product, but liked sales, so I went in search of new peaks to conquer. 
I tried on used cars, then paper milling, then wholesale fabrics, before moving into the big leagues. Potato chips? she asked smilingly. Potato chips, I smile back. Managed to pick up a couple of ex-wives along the way. Lost the dog both times in the divorce. I also have a son who's grown and lives in Spokane. Then I came to Margot's Curios Cave. The end. I don't know, Jack. That sounds like a movie I'd watch. Your bar is low. Friendly smiles exchanged. Max always told me there are three stages to every sale. Education, deliberation, and decision. And they're bookended by rapport and close. If you haven't set the right mood, the middle three don't happen right. And even if everything else goes perfectly, if you don't know when to tie it all together, you'll never get to the finish line. It's time to start educating Ms. Margot on the finer points of fish-flavored potato treats. That left hand is really going now. I hazard a glance at my watch. 1026. If we get this thing moving, I could be in that glove box by 11, 11.30 latest. So, besides terrible soda, tell me more about the offerings at the world's worst snack bar, I entreat. Do you sell any chips? Jack, Margot says teasingly. Are you getting ready to invite me to the parking lot to show me what's in the back of your truck? I, uh, kidding, kidding. Hey, I'll make it easy. To be honest, blackened tilapia chips sound disgusting, and I have no interest in tasting them. I do, however, have a huge interest in selling them. I suspect they will immediately jump into second place as the worst thing on the menu, just behind strawberry meatloaf soda. So I'll make you a deal. I'll take all of them off your hands on one condition. You have to let me read your palm. I know that sounds crazy, but here's my dilemma. Palm reading is my newest hobby, and I want to offer it as a service at the cave, but I don't have anyone to practice on besides Julie, who you met on the way in and whose future is not that interesting. Frankly, according to her palm, it's pretty bleak. Don't tell her I said that. I've been trying to paint her a good picture. I smile. Anyhow, if you let me do a reading, I'll take those terrible chips off your hands and you can start your weekend early. What do you say? The glove box beckons and my hand shakes its approval. How could I say no to an offer like that? I hold my right hand out to her across the picnic table and she takes it into hers, which are supple and warm. She examines it closely, back to front, then motions for my left. I feel it trembling in my lap, and it causes me to pause for half a blink before I shrug inwardly and pass it over too. Similar to the right, she studies this one back to front as well, tracing a slow finger over the lines and ridges of my quavering palm. Her finger lingers on the rippling surface as she looks up and into my eyes with a glimmer of understanding, holds for a beat, then drops her gaze back to my hands. Your heart is full of love, she begins. You're a man of great aspiration, and though your ambition is large, you're humble and grateful for your many blessings. You're funny and charismatic. People like you, and your life is rich with friends. As she speaks, her finger moves across the tracks of my shaking palm, connecting line to line in a deliberate and unbroken flow. Her eyes remain downward cast. Her voice is low. You travel wide, but you've never met a stranger. Your greatest strength is your lack of fear. Your life has been a grand adventure. At this, she looks up and meets my eyes. But your best is yet to come. To the last detail, everything she has just said is wrong. I hold her look. She holds my shaking hand. Amazing, I lie. 
I'd say you have a bright future ahead of you as a gypsy. I don't have the stomach for truth right now. Her smile twists to a smirk, and I know she's unconvinced. Sit tight. I'll be right back, she says, and gives my hand a squeeze. She disappears behind the snack trailer, returning a moment later with a bottle and two jelly jars that she plunks down on the picnic table as she retakes her seat. I must look surprised because her laugh is playful and self-conscious. I don't know what to say, so I say nothing. She sits silently for a moment, looking over my shoulder and across the meadow. Gotta love the universe, she says, halfway to herself. Always with a trick up her sleeve. Still not sure where this is going. I hold my silence. I'm not the sentimental type, but I did wake up this morning hoping for a distraction. Gray died six years ago today. I start to speak, but she stops me with a raised hand and meets my eye. No need for that. I was just oversharing. She regains her smile, green eyes mischievously ablaze. He lived hard, and no one was surprised when he went out early. But I do like to remember him each year with a drink, and you strike me as the type who wouldn't mind joining. I don't often turn down a drink, I admit, as I reach for the bottle and fill the jars strong, and never from a lady. Margot smiles at this and takes the jar I offer. To Gray, in the love of strange places, I say, lifting my drink to hers. She taps her glass to mine and smiles. To the art of the clothes, she adds with a wink. The end. This has been another episode of Montana 3000. Check out the website for more information and additional stories. Montana3000.com If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Until next time, happy trails. <laughs>